the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program, we'll talk with Carson Steelman. He's a Heritage Action for America press secretary. We'll talk about the administration's move to... Uh, lift the federal gas tax for three months. Now, Congress has to actually do it. And so far, not even the Democrats have expressed uh, support. But we'll talk about what that might mean and whether or not it would have a real impact or if it would have an impact on the inflation rate and the deficit. That's coming up at the top of the second hour. Then we'll have a conversation with Casey Pipes, author of After the Fall, the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. Did you know he had a remarkable comeback? Well, we'll talk about that later in the program. So that's uh, our lineup. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, President Biden understands that high gas prices pose a significant challenge for working families. So says a White House fact sheet released this morning announcing the president's support for a federal and state gas tax holiday. Now, he doesn't have the authority to, by executive action, impose such a, uh, uh, a what would you call it, a brief uh, time out. But the White House touts the Bi- that Biden has taken action in recent months, releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and encouraging oil companies and refiners to boost capacity and output to get more supply on the market. Well, in the speech later in the day, the president urged Congress and states to provide direct relief to American consumers who've been hit with the Putin price hike, as he calls it. Specifically, he's calling on Congress to suspend the federal gas tax for three months through September without taking any money away from the Highway Trust Fund. And he called on states to take similar action to provide some direct relief, whether suspending their own gas taxes or helping consumers in other ways. Well, the federal gas tax is 18.4 cents per gallon and 24 cents for diesel per gallon. The taxes fund the Highway Trust Fund, which is intended for highway repair and construction and public transportation. The gas tax holiday will deprive that fund of roughly $10 billion. The president is also calling on Congress to make sure that a gas tax holiday has no negative effect on the Highway Trust Fund. I'm not sure how you reconcile the two, but the uh, release went on to say that with our deficit already down by an historic one point six trillion dollars this year, the president believes that we can afford to suspend the gas tax to help consumers while using other revenues to make the highway trust fund whole for the roughly ten billion cost ten billion dollar cost. Interestingly, his predecessor, for whom he served as vice president, referred to this kind of thing as a gimmick. That was designed more to garner votes than to actually accomplish anything significant. So the president has an uphill battle in convincing his own party that this is the right thing to do at this time. So we'll continue to follow that story. And as mentioned, uh, coming up in the second hour, we'll talk with Carson Steelman. Heritage Action uh, made a preemptive study on the uh, proposed um, tax break. And we'll find out what they discovered, whether or not it's favorable or not. Well, the president explained that the federal suspension, if enacted, would pause an 18 cent per gallon gas tax 
for um, gasoline and 24% rather for diesel. I'm not even going to get into that. All right. President Biden made a cryptic comment um, on an upcoming second pandemic while he was speaking about child vaccines. It was during presidential remarks on COVID-19 vaccines for children under five years old that the president alarmed Twitter users when he spoke of the government preparing for a second pandemic. Now, you might assume he's just anticipating that we could have at some point in the future another pandemic because we're just likely to. But during the presidential remarks um, on COVID-19 vaccines for children under five, the president alarmed Twitter users when he spoke uh, that the government is preparing for a second pandemic. A reporter prompted the president's um, head turning remarks when a question on what spending the U.S. government is still prepared to do in order to manufacture and distribute more vaccines and maintain the infrastructure necessary to combat COVID-19 as it lingers throughout the country. Last week, the CDC and FDA authorized emergency use of COVID-19 vaccine for kids as young as six months old. I know you're looking for more money from Congress for this vaccine campaign and for COVID funding going into the fall, the reporter told the president before asking, how would uh, how much of the supply of vaccines for these small children is there and how many of the, the nation's kids will you be able to get vaccinated before you need more money from Congress? Well, the president responded, we'll get through at least this year before stating we do need more money, but we don't just need more money for vaccines for children. Eventually, we need more money to plan for the second pandemic. He reinforced his revelation saying there's going to be another pandemic. We have to think ahead Uh, for good measure. He slammed the Trump administration and propped up his own saying, and that's not something the last outfit did very well. That's something we've been doing fairly well. Uh, That's why we need the money through Twitter users. um, I should say, though, Twitter users were mystified and annoyed when the president's uh, warning of another pandemic right in time for 2024, tweeted a uh, one contributor and the New York Post writer Miranda Devine insinuating another pandemic may interfere with the upcoming election. Another commentator, Ian Miles Chiang, expressed confusion about the president's statement, wondering Biden said he needed more money to deal with a second pandemic. What did he mean by this? One conservative radio host, Tara Severatis, uh, tweeted, here's the Biden administration telling us they're planning to hold another pandemic, almost as if they can control the disease. Three weeks ago, Fauci announced it would occur in the fall, which corresponds perfectly with the midterm elections. Another remarked, sounds like a threat. The Federalist CEO, Sean Davis, says sports captor uh, caster. Gary Sheffield Jr. pushed back on the president's comments, tweeting, let Nancy Pelosi uh, pay for it using her investment uh, portfolio. We aren't giving you a dime and we aren't going back inside. A lawyer and podcaster, uh, Phil Holloway, joked over the president's remarks, tweeting, any idea when I would like to stock up on toilet paper a little better next time. And the Western Journal commentary author, Samantha Chang, opined that Biden would use the second pandemic to interfere with the midterm elections. Mumbles make the case for more shady mail-in voting, ballot harvesting. The next variant will occur shortly before the November midterm elections. Another conservative author tweeted, breaking, here we go again. Needless to say, without clarification and the insinuation in those comments and others made before about the timing of the next pandemic, Some are questioning whether or not this is a manufactured crisis to impact the upcoming midterm election. 
We'll follow the story to see if we can get more clarification. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, top Senate negotiators Tuesday agreed to the details of a much-anticipated gun bill and released the text as they uh, seek to take action in the wake of recent mass shootings. A group that includes uh, Senator John Cornyn, a Republican of Texas, Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, Tom Tillis, a Republican from North Carolina, and Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat from Arizona, completed work on the text of the bill on Tuesday. Uh, The senator's offices released it shortly thereafter. Responding to the bill in a statement, today we finalize bipartisan common sense legislation to protect America's children, keep our schools safe, and reduce the threat of violence across our country. Our legislation will save lives and will not infringe on any law-abiding Americans' Second Amendment rights. We look forward to earning broad bipartisan support and passing our common sense legislation into law, end quote. Well, those four were part of a larger group, including 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats, who agreed to a framework of principles earlier this month. Speaking on the Senate floor late Tuesday afternoon, Senator Coynion said that he believes, uh, as those senators see the bill, they will see that uh, the text supports these principles. So the bill immediately garnered further bipartisan support, cleared a procedural vote on Tuesday, a 64 to 34 vote. It will very likely move forward and be debated on thoroughly. Well, enough Senate Republicans voted for the bill in the procedural vote Tuesday. Not all conservatives are backing it. The National Rifle Association issued a statement of opposition. We will oppose this gun control legislation because it falls short on every level, the group said. It doesn't truly address violent crime while opening the door to unnecessary burdens on the exercise of Second Amendment freedom by law-abiding gun owners. I do not support this legislation and will, I will continue to vote against it. That's a quote from Senate Republican Conference Chair John Barrasso from Wyoming. As a senator from Wyoming, I know the meaning of the Second Amendment. I will not vote for any legislation that would jeopardize the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens. So it will have an uphill battle in Washington. Well, the Family Policy Alliance uh, reports that today they uh, announced that Representative Jim Banks, he's the chairman of the Republican Study Committee and an alum of their uh, uh, Foundation Statement Academy or Statesman Academy, introduced the Protecting Minors from Medical Malpractice Act. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton is sponsoring the bill in the Senate. The bill reflects the principles of the Family uh, Policy Alliance Help Not Harm campaign. And they believe children who are hurting and struggling need real help, not harm. That children who have legitimate gender conflict have been pressured into transition by politicized medicine. And that everyday youth around the country are endangered by transgender interventions that can leave them sterile, missing healthy body parts and filled with regret. And uh, that children should be protected from politicized medicine and should have the right to recover from the damages done Uh, To them, the Protecting Minors from Medical Malpractice Act will spare children a lifetime of regret, keeps politics out of their health care. And Chairman uh, Jim Banks and Senator Tom Cotton um, and their leadership championing this bill through Congress has just begun. So we'll continue to uh, follow the legislation and try to read it more thoroughly uh, and report on that at some future point. Meanwhile, the American Medical Association announced last week that the organization would be adopting a new policy that recognizes abortion restrictions as a violation of human rights. So it's not just a constitutional right, 
uh, as interpreted back in 1973 and now called into question, but now a human right. The American Medical Association, which is one of the largest healthcare associations in the country, promised legal actions to protect access to abortion should restrictions be imposed on the state level. In other words, if the Supreme Court at some point in the next several days overturns Roe versus Wade, saying there is no constitutional right to an abortion and it is remanded back to the states to determine what each state will do on its own, the AMA will legally challenge that. AMA went on to state that the group views abortion as a private matter between the patient and physician. The association made the announcement via a press release earlier this month. Well, slamming the brakes, the president puts his weight behind a federal gas tax holiday, but analysts warn it could make inflation worse. And in fact, at five o'clock, we'll talk with Carson Steelman of the Heritage Action for America about that very thing. Raising new fears, some six major cities are on pace to pass historic 2021 violent crime totals halfway through 2022. A key gun agreement has been reached and a group working to elect more Republican women to Congress is touting its efforts and successes in congressional races across the country as the road to this year's midterm elections makes its way through a busy primary season. The Winning for Women Action Fund, the political arm of the conservative women's advocacy group Winning for Women, has already been involved in a number of races this election cycle and has seen record fundraising as it looks to help women candidates make an even greater impact on the makeup of Congress. Hillary Clinton flip-flopped on her view of transgender issues, changing her tune from the highest priority to should not be a priority. Saying it's not all about the price of gas, MSNBC, The Washington Post, and ABC figures so warn voters against gas price influencing their vote in November. There's nothing to see here. Apparently, the media doesn't want a GOP war. MSNBC's Joy Reid complained the media doesn't want to be at war with Republicans. If you've watched the networks, you might beg to differ. Twitter rejected a Washington Post article on the abortion law in Texas deemed inadvertently pro-life on Twitter. So it was rejected because it was inadvertently pro-life. Americans largely avoided CNN during Father's Day weekend as the network continued to hemorrhage support from the demographic most coveted by advertisers. CNN managed only 67,000 average viewers between ages 25 to 54 from the 18th through the 19th of this month for its smallest weekend audience since 2000 in the category that pays the bills. It was the network's third worst performance in the critical demo during a weekend since 1993. Well, seniors, 401k, have been hit. Americans are losing trillions as their retirement accounts feel the effects of the stock rut. The Supreme Court has ruled Maine's state tuition funding cannot exclude religious schools. The Supreme Court on Tuesday ruled that Maine cannot exclude religious schools from a state tuition aid program, saying that doing so violates the First Amendment. In a 6-3 opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that Maine's program operates to identify and exclude otherwise eligible schools on the basis of their religious exercise. The program allows parents who live in areas without public high school to receive state assistance to cover tuition costs at public or private schools in their communities as long as they are considered non-sectarian. 
Wall Street Journal weighs in, saying Maine has 180,000 secondary school students, fewer than 5,000, largely in the state's sparsely populated north, live in localities without public schools and therefore qualify for the tuition program. Parents there can obtain tuition payments for any accredited non-sectarian school nationwide that provides instruction roughly equivalent to the education they would receive in public schools. Shannon Bream weighs in. We got the um, school voucher decision. Maine had barred parents without a public school option from using state money toward religious schools. Six to three. Hashtag SCOTUS finds that violates the Constitution. President Biden is unremorseful about his high gas prices as he pushes clean energy. President Biden faced backlash after appearing to suggest that high gas prices would be a good opportunity to make a fundamental turn to clean energy on Monday. Some conservatives call the president out on uh, Twitter for the comments as gas prices average 4.98 a gallon nationwide, according to AAA. And inflation rose to a 40-year high last month, sparking fears of an impending recession. The president's comments sparked backlash from many conservatives, with some critiquing the president as being tone deaf to the problems average Americans are facing. Greg Price says that Biden uh, says of Biden, my mother had an expression out of everything lousy, something good will happen. We have a chance to make a fundamental turn toward renewable energy, electric vehicles and across the board. What he doesn't mention is the cost of that transition, which is really decades away. Chevron CEO Mike Worth penned a letter to President Biden asking for an honest, consistent dialogue. Energy giant Chevron told President Biden Tuesday his administration should offer clarity and consistency on energy policies and record gas pump prices and engage in honest dialogue about the importance of domestic oil production instead of trying to vilify the companies who produce it. The Chevron chairman and CEO Mike Worth was responding to an accusation made by the president last week that corporate greed is in part to blame for sky high prices at the pump and a threat from the president to invoke emergency wartime powers to force more gasoline production. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to work our way through some of the news headlines. We'll talk with Carson Steelman in the second hour on uh, said suspension of the federal gas tax. And we'll talk with Casey Pipes, author of After the Fall, the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we're going to talk about the president's proposed federal gas tax suspension for three months and what that might mean for the economy and for folks who use gasoline and um, diesel. Well, three obstacles are slowing Elon Musk from buying Twitter. According to The Wall Street Journal, he said on Tuesday that his $44 billion bid to buy Twitter, Inc. was stalled by three unresolved matters, earning shareholder approval, obtaining debt financing and getting answers to his questions about spam and fake accounts on the platform. CNBC says the fake uh, the fate of the deal rather has become more uncertain in recent weeks after Musk threatened to walk away, citing concerns over the number of fake accounts on the platform. The billionaire could face a one billion dollar breakup fee and possibly even lawsuit if he were to abandon the deal. Speaking at an event hosted by Bloomberg on Tuesday, Musk said there were a number of unresolved matters that will need settling before he can move forward with that takeover. Twitter's board unanimously recommended that its shareholders vote to approve Tesla CEO Musk's offer, the acquisition of the social media giant. The deal, which is currently expected to close in 2022, would take Twitter private uh, at $54.20 per share. The filing comes, as Musk said in an interview Tuesday, uh, that the shareholder approval was one of three unresolved matters. 
An EU official is calling Russia's blockade of Ukrainian exports a war crime. The Financial Times reports that Russia's military assault on Ukraine may have stalled in the Donbass, but as its stability to prevent or ability to prevent millions of tons of grain from leaving the Black Sea ports is proving far more successful with ominous consequences for Kyiv and the global food crisis. A de facto naval blockade means that Ukraine, traditionally one of the world's top crop producers, has for months been unable to export most of the 20 uh, uh, million tons of grain stored in its silos. This has helped push prices to record highs and left 100 million uh, more people unable to meet their food needs. The New York Times weighs in. Uh, you cannot use the hunger of people as a weapon of war. That's a, a Mr. Borrell said after arriving in Luxembourg to meet with the EU foreign ministers, millions of tons of wheat remain blocked in Ukraine, while in the rest of the world, people are suffering hunger. A.G. Garland visited Ukraine to assist with the war crimes trials there. The attorney general is making a surprise visit to throw America's weight behind ongoing war crimes trials against the Russian military. The Justice Department revealed yesterday Ukraine has reportedly opened roughly 16,000 investigations into alleged war crimes by Russian troops since Vladimir Putin, the president, ordered the invasion in Ukraine in February. Multiple nations and international organizations have also launched investigations into alleged Russian crimes. Attorney General Merrick Garland is making an unannounced visit to Ukraine today where he will meet with Ukrainian prosecutor general uh, to discuss U.S. and international efforts to help Ukraine identify, apprehend and prosecute those individuals involved in war crimes and other atrocities in the country. Here in the U.S., we have ongoing violations of federal law in a coordinated campaign of intimidation says Ed Morrissey, perhaps his attention is better focused there. A Russian journalist, Dmitry Muratov, uh, auctioned his Nobel Peace Prize for $103.5 million and donated the proceeds to UNICEF. The Russian journalist auctioned his Nobel Peace Prize on Monday with the proceeds donated to help Ukrainian children. The auction record amount will support um, United Nations Children's Fund, the Child Refugee Fund, according to Heritage Auctions. The donation will support Ukrainian child refugees impacted due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This award is unlike any other auction offering to present. Uh, the Heritage Auction said in a statement ahead of the sale, Mr. Muratov what the full support of his staff uh, is allowing us to auction his medal, not as a collectible, but as an event that he hopes will positively impact the lives of millions of Ukrainian refugees. Megan Rapino catches flack for her dismissive comment about trans inclusion. The Daily Wire reports that leading women's soccer player Megan Rapino, Rapino, Get it right. Caught the wrath of social media users on Tuesday for arguing that female athletes and their parents need to get over the advantages biologically male transgender athletes have over girls. She told The Times magazine in an interview published Sunday that she is 100 percent supportive of trans inclusion in female sports, dismissing concerns about fairness. I would also encourage everyone out there who is afraid someone's going to have an unfair advantage over their kid to really take a step back and think what we're actually talking about, she said. We're talking about people's lives. I'm sorry, your kid's high school volleyball team just isn't that important. Well, it might be if that volleyball scholarship that the daughter would uh, be eligible for is taken by someone 
who has a biological significant advantage and she is not able to continue on to higher education. Ben Shapiro weighs in saying, just a note, if biological males were allowed to play against the U.S. women's national soccer team, Megan Rapino and crew would get their, well, they would lose by a bunch of junior high boys. Taylor White says, so wasn't it Megan Rapino whose team got defeated by a bunch of high school boys? Uh, Vanessa Santos weighs in saying that she can safely say these things because she is near retirement and she isn't in danger of being replaced by a transgender athlete. She's doing nothing to preserve the future of female sports. She is selfish, end quote. A bipartisan agreement on gun legislation is being hindered by the Hyde Amendment. Politico reports that Senate negotiators and their staff spent a long weekend putting the finishing touches on the bipartisan gun safety legislation, which was released earlier in the day. The Senate is back in session today and aides are expecting the text will be made public. And it was today. A GOP source familiar with the weekend talk said that the Hyde Amendment that bars the use of federal funds to pay for abortion has come into play in the discussions over the bill's health care provisions that means that two of the most divisive and visceral political issues in the country, guns and abortion, could be paired together. President Trump endorsed candidates result in a win in Alabama and two losses in Georgia. Now, this is only relevant because the big question mark remains whether or not Donald Trump will seek a second term in the White House. Well, in Alabama's GOP primary runoff election for the U.S. Senate, Katie Britt defeated Representative Mo Brooks. Britt received Donald Trump's endorsement, which he withdrew from Brooks after taking offense over his suggestion that Trump needed to get over the 2020 election result. Trump also accused Brooks of being lazy and criticized him for hiring some never-Trump advisors. Britt welcomed Trump's endorsement and responded to her election victory by saying, It is exciting to see so many young conservatives and young women step up and say it's time. She further noted that the Republican Party is no longer the party of big business, but has become the party of working Americans. Meanwhile, the Peach State continues to remain a thorn in President Trump's side. Two Republicans whom the former president endorsed, Vernon Jones of Georgia's 10th Congressional District and Jake Evans for the state's 6th Congressional District, went down in big defeats in their primary runoffs. Republican consultant Dan McLagan suggested that Trump's ire has outweighed his influence in Georgia and that Governor um, Brian Kemp's stock in Georgia is a lot higher than Trump's right now. Now, It's rather interesting to weigh whether or not a Trump or former president endorsed candidate is successful. Now, the candidate has to carry the race on their own merits as well. So it's difficult to know how to um, how to weigh that. But. Uh, as a measure of uh, the former president's influence, I think it's a it's fair game to make that connection. President Biden yields to the GOP and will keep a factory running for AR-15 ammo. The Department of Justice engaged in court packing on steroids with immigration judges. And Matt Gates is pushing to reinstate service members dismissed over the covid vaccine. Iran renews its threats to assassinate Mike Pompeo and former uh, rather family of Duante Wright has reached a $3.25 million settlement over a deadly traffic stop. Officers in Uvalde were ready with guns, shields and tools, but not clear orders. And Democrats are seeking to suppress pro-life Google search results. In another case of falling dominoes, another sports league, rugby, has banned transgender athletes. No 15-year-old figure skater will be allowed to compete in the 2026 Olympics following the controversy surrounding Russian national champion 
Camilla Valieva at the year's uh, this year's Beijing Games. A new age limit for figure skaters at senior international events was passed Tuesday by the International Skating Union in a 110 to 16 vote that will raise the minimum age to 17 before the next Winter Olympics in Italy. The ISU drafted an age limit proposal saying burnout, disordered eating, and long-term consequences of injury were a risk to young teenage skaters who are pushed to perform more quadruple jumps. The governing body said it had a duty to care for and to protect the physical and physiological health and safety of all athletes, including elite adolescent athletes. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next hour, we'll talk with Carson Steelman, Heritage Action for America's press secretary, on the administration's move to lift the federal gas tax, uh, concluding that such a move would create even more inflation, wouldn't drive down gas prices enough to provide the relief Americans really need. We'll give him an opportunity to make that case. Also, we'll t- hear from Casey Pipes after the fall, the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. Well, if you spent rather sent your nine year old daughter to school and she broke her arm playing on the playground, but the school didn't tell you uh, that would be grounds for a harsh conversation with administrators, if not a lawsuit. Right. Well, there are school policies and state and federal laws that outline parameters for transparency between parents, students and schools. They're meant to protect everyone, but particularly the child. And they're rooted in the idea that parental authority is paramount, even in schools. Yet this fundamental concept seems to be corroding under the guise that woke schools and teachers know best. Well, in Pennsylvania recently, three parents filed a federal lawsuit alleging that their children's first grade teacher violated their rights, not to mention school policy and state law, by teaching their children about gender dysphoria and transgender transitioning. In this case, transgender transitioning, while not physically possible, refers to using drugs or surgery to make the body appear as the opposite sex from which a person was born. Well, three parents uh, are all mothers speaking out against the Mount Lebanon School District in their lawsuit which names multiple school administrators and first grade teacher. The mothers are seeking a court order to either stop the gender related instruction at the elementary school in Pittsburgh or provide parents the ability to opt their children out of it. Well, the uh, mothers allege that Williams failed, the teacher, failed to honor their parental rights with her direct classroom instruction on gender dysphoria and that the district didn't list gender dysphoria and transgender transitioning as part of the curriculum online, violating their own policy. Well, in essence, it sounds like the school was taking advantage of kids who were confused about their gender, experiencing dysphoria, and were encouraging them to adopt the qualities of the opposite sex, like changing their names and using a different bathroom, the mothers argued. Well, it turns out that Williams herself, the teacher, is the mother of a transgender child who was also in first grade. Still, the mothers point out in the lawsuit that this does not give her the right to impose those views on a captive audience of six and seven year old children. According to the lawsuit, Williams, the teacher, had gone so far as to tell students that sometimes parents are wrong and parents and doctors make mistakes when they bring a child home from the house, from the hospital rather, and declare that he or she is a boy or girl. Well, this section of the plaintiff's filing uh, encapsulates the entire lawsuit and the problem with the uh, the case and those uh, those like it. Well, this lawsuit is not about politics, they write. It's not anti-transgender. It's not about censorship. It's about banning. It's not about banning books. It's not about 
uh, precluding appropriate uh, diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. Rather, it's about plaintiffs, parents' rights and each of their respective decisions not to want their six or seven year olds to receive first grade classroom instruction on gender dysphoria or transgender transitioning from their first grade teacher. Well, these Pennsylvania moms are not alone. A California mom filed a similar lawsuit in Montgomery County because in 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic, teachers at her sixth grader daughter's school recruited the middle schoolers to join an equality club where she was told she may be transgender and bisexual, two things she knew nothing about before the club. Two seventh grade um, Teachers created the club for students who they believed might be receptive to ideas such as homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, gender nonconformity, etc. It's not clear what criterion they base those decisions on. Well, teachers and school administrators encouraged Jessica Conan's daughter to change her name to a boy's name and then specifically instructed her not to tell her mother about her new identity because her mother couldn't be trusted. Together, school staff convinced the middle school age girl she was bisexual and later transgender. Without uh, the parents' knowledge, teachers and administrators created a gender support plan and told faculty to call her daughter by her new male name and to let her use the unisex teacher's restroom. It was only after months had passed that the mother was made aware of what her daughter had been experiencing and what the school had been doing without her knowledge or consent. In this specific case... She maintains that she would have gladly supported her daughter's uh, gender struggles if only the school had been transparent. Ironically, during the COVID-19 pandemic and throughout remote learning, her daughter, now released from the influence of school staff, no longer agrees that she is bisexual or transgender. The right of parents to maintain authority over their children while at school is a constitutional one. It's also protected by state and federal law. The U.S. Supreme Court has held that the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause includes the right of parents to control the education of their children and that the liberty of parents and guardians includes the right to direct the upbringing and education of children under their control, end quote. Well, that schools perpetuate uh, gender identity issues among first graders and create gender equality clubs aimed at 11-year-olds is bad enough. Kids this age are... Uh, often too young to even be aware of their gender, to say nothing of whether or not they are uncomfortable with it. Studies show that while gender dysphoria is real, helping a child embrace an opposite gender is not the best approach, but rather the best approach is to wait and see. Historically, gender dysphoria is a rare condition that dissipates as the child ages and goes through puberty. Well, it goes on from there. I read a quote uh, just the other day suggesting, when I was five, I wanted to be a pirate, but my parents didn't uh, gouge my eye out and cut off my leg. Uh, they just waited for me to outgrow it, and I took on another occupation. Well, on this day in history, 1937, Joe Lewis begins uh, his reign as the world heavyweight boxing champion by knocking out Jim Braddock in the eighth round of their fight in Chicago. 1944, President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, more popularly known as the GI Bill of Rights. 1970, President Richard Nixon signs an extension of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 that lowered the minimum voting age to 16. 1977, John N. Mitchell becomes the first former U.S. Attorney General to go to prison as he began serving a sentence for his role in the Watergate cover-up. He was released 19 months later. 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court in R.A.V. versus City of St. Paul unanimously rules that 
Hate crime laws that banned cross-burning and similar expressions of racial bias violated free speech. 2012, ex-Penn State assistant coach Jerry Sandusky is convicted by a jury in Belafonte, Pennsylvania, on 45 counts of sexually assaulting 10 boys over 15 years. Sandusky is appealing a 30- to 60-year state prison sentence. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders is asked to leave a Red Hen restaurant in Virginia. The co-owner said the move came at the request of gay employees who objected to her defense of President Trump's effort to bar transgender people from the military. That was the first of several incidents across the country during the pandemic. Well, coming up in our second hour, we've got news and traffic, by the way, coming up in just a few moments. But coming up in our second hour, we'll begin with a conversation with Carson Steelman. He is the uh, press secretary for Heritage Action for America. It's the political arm of the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the uh, president's proposal to lift the federal gas tax, what impact that is likely to have in a number of areas. And will it effectively uh, relieve the pressure on gas prices Uh, and have no uh, negative impact after the three months has ended. We'll get into that with Carson Steelman in just a few moments. We'll also uh, share a classic interview with Casey Pipes. After the Fall is the title of the book, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon. And we'll uh, review an article on the decline of a nation, what it takes if we're in the process of said decline, and what an opportunity that presents for those who are followers of Jesus. All of that coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. But first, we've got news and traffic, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Casey Pipes, author of After the Fall, the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. And we'll also consider the decline of a nation and what that might mean moving forward. Well, Heritage Action for America's executive director, Jessica Anderson, is slamming the Biden administration for slapping a Band-Aid on the gas price crisis that's crippling the American economy. Back in April, the Heritage Foundation, in fact, published a report preempting the president's move to lift the federal gas tax, which was announced earlier today, concluding that such a move would create even more inflation and wouldn't drive down gas prices enough to provide the relief Americans really need now. Well, the one campaign promise the president has kept is his vow to cripple the American energy independence. Well, here to talk about all of this is Carson Steelman, Heritage Action for America press secretary on the administration's move to lift the federal gas tax for the next three months, or at least the president's call to do just that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, the Heritage Foundation writes about three policy gimmicks, as they're referred to, uh, that the uh, the administration is proposing. We mentioned the federal gas tax. There's the windfall profit tax on energy producers. And then they're sending federal checks to households or gas cards or something like that. Gimmicks, would these have an impact on uh, the, the gas prices and relieve Americans over the next couple of months of the burden that they're currently paying in terms of gas and diesel prices? No, they they absolutely would not. Um, so if you look at the average gas price right now, it's it soared to over $5 a gallon, um, which is up about $3 from last year. Um, and the federal tax on gasoline is a little over $0.18 cents per gallon and a little over $0.24 cents per, um, per gallon for diesel. So this really is just a Band-Aid. It's a short-term solution to a long-term problem. 
So what role can or does the president play in terms of gas prices? He made it very clear in his address earlier today that this really is, you know, we're at war and this is uh, Putin's responsibility, even though the increase predated um, the war in Ukraine. Uh, Who's responsible and how much can the federal government or the president actually do? Well, in terms of what he can actually do with this um, tax holiday, he has to ask Congress. He can't unilaterally do this, uh, which is interesting because you even have some Democrats in Congress uh, who are criticizing this. I mean, if you look at Biden's former boss, President, mm-hmm. former President Obama, uh, he even called a, a federal uh, gas ho- or tax holiday a gimmick, too. So this is not a popular idea, even with Democrats. But going back to who's responsible, although President Biden likes to shift the blame, um, you know, first inflation was transitory. That was a lie. Uh, Next, it was Putin's fault. Of course, that was also a lie. If you just simply look at the numbers and and when gas prices started spiking. Um, So at what point is he going to, you know, stand up and say, you know what, the buck stops with me. This is my fault. Uh, This has to do with all the the insane, crazy spending, um, the increase of the national debt. And most importantly, when it comes to gas prices, uh, uh, he's been punishing oil and gas companies. And this is not just incompetence. Uh, This is very intentional from the Biden administration. Uh, Like Jessica Anderson said, uh, this is the one election promise that Biden seems to have kept. Um, From the beginning, he said that he was going to uh, force Americans to to no longer rely on on fossil fuels, which is just a ridiculous statement. Um, But in that, he's completely uh, punished the American energy industry and Americans are paying for it. Well, let's talk about the windfall profit tax on energy producers that's also being considered. Could you explain what that means and why that's a bad idea? Yeah, so this is just another way that the Biden administration is punishing um, energy producers. So instead of allowing uh, American energy companies to flourish, to uh, to create jobs, to, um, you know, act as, uh, you know, helpful in our economy. There's just another punishment that the administration is doing uh, to try to the American people towards his green climate, green New Deal um, agenda. Now, the other proposal is the um, sending federal checks to households or a a gas card to those who consume um, gasoline. How does this uh, measure up in terms of actually helping to relieve the, the pressure on Americans who are paying significantly high prices? Yeah, it's counterproductive, right? It's just more government spending. It's another temporary solution that fails to address the root causes of why gas prices are going up. Americans don't need a check in the mail. They need prices to go down. Um, This is not about uh, whether or not the federal government should be paying for the gas. It's whether or not the gas is affordable. And the gas is not affordable because American energy companies are crippled and the Biden administration uh, refuses um, to to help these companies lower the cost. Now, it's one thing to uh, point out what uh, the proposals will do and what they won't do. And and one of the things, the concerns that we have is that this will have an impact on inflation and the deficit moving forward if these proposals, particularly the uh, the federal gas tax holiday. But how can the administration uh, produce, uh, uh, utilize regulatory uh, reforms um, that might have an impact in the short and the longer term. What is the right approach in this case? Well, I think the right approach here is probably less regulation, right? The Biden administration continues to 
um, you know, put these these you know arbitrary uh, regulations and mandates on companies, uh, and, and they've used COVID as an excuse a few times, and and now they're using um, you know climate activism as as an iteration of that. Um, so so they keep putting all these regulations on on these companies, and what they probably need to do, what they definitely need to do, is do less of, of less of that regulation and let companies um, you know act you know, according to supply and demand, according to uh, economic principles that have guided them this far. How likely is it from your perspective that the president will get what he wants in uh, convincing Congress to um, establish a federal gas tax holiday? You know, initially, I probably would have said he would be pretty successful and he still might be. Um, But it seems like there's growing opposition from the Democrats in Congress, they're looking at this and they're also looking at their um, re-election prospects. And they're saying, you know, the American people see right through this. Um, the, you know, the Biden administration can't lie to the people anymore and it can't shift blame for what's going on in the country. It's not just rising inflation or gas prices. It's everything. It's, it's the incompetence on the border, rising crime, uh, you know, education, you name it, it's going wrong. So the, the Democrats in Congress are, I think, starting to look a little bit more skeptically at the Biden administration. Uh, they no longer want to campaign um, with the, uh, President Biden, the vice president. So that's a pretty good indicator. But um, again, I, I still think that it, it could happen. But I'm a little bit more optimistic than I, than I maybe would have been about a month or two ago. Now, the report that the Heritage Foundation published points out that the United States can't fully control the market price of oil or gasoline. Policymakers aren't helpless to affect the situation. However, um, you you mentioned that you might be a little more optimistic. Um, how should we uh, respond to these proposals, including the one in which you know they're talking about gas cards or uh, giving money to the American people? How should we respond to this in trying to convince lawmakers in Washington how to move forward? Well, I think the number one thing that. Uh, anybody can do is call their representative and tell them um, to to um, you know to say no, absolutely not. We don't want this. This is not a long-term solution. Um, this is record-setting inflation that is not transitory. It's not going anywhere, uh, and we need a we need a better solution. So the number one thing that you can do is call your your representative in Congress, whether that's in the House or in the Senate. I would encourage folks to to call both and tell them that not only do we want these uh, proposals from the Biden administration to be struck down, but we also want them to be replaced with proposals that will unleash American energy and that will lower spending in the national debt. Well, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about it, uh, and um, we'll certainly encourage listeners to do just that. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you so much, much for having me. Mm-hmm. Once again, Carson Steelman is with Heritage Action for America. Uh, talking about the uh, president's proposal to lift the federal gas tax to give a three-month holiday. Coming up, Casey Pipes, after the fall, the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that Amer- that a president can make a powerful comeback. On August the 9th, 1974, Richard Nixon became the first and only U.S. president to resign from office to avoid almost certain impeachment. Utterly disgraced, he was forced to flee the White House with a small cadre of advisors and family. Richard Nixon was a completely defeated man. 
Yet only a decade later, Nixon was a trusted advisor to presidents, dispensing wisdom on campaign strategy and foreign policy, shaping the course of U.S.-Soviet summit meetings, and representing the U.S. at state funerals, the very model of an elder statesman. Well, how did he do it? Well, in the new book, After the Fall, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon, my next guest, Casey Pipes, former advisor to President George Walker uh, W. Bush, tells the fascinating story of Nixon's comeback. He was granted unprecedented access by the Nixon family to the private post-presidential documents at the Nixon Library. He reveals inside information that has never been reported about Nixon's successful campaign to repair his reputation and resuscitate his career. Well, After the Fall is the gripping, never-before-told story of one of the most remarkable reversals of fortune in U.S. history. My guest, Casey Pipe, served as an advisor to President George W. Bush and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. He is a co-founder of the issues management firm Corley Pipes, partner at the public affairs firm Highwater Strategies, and the Norris Fellow at the Eisenhower Institute at Gettysburg College. His writings have appeared in USA Today and Politico. He is the author of Ike's Final Battle, The Road to Little Rock, and The Challenge of Equality. He joins us today to talk about this fascinating book, after the fall, the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. Casey Pipes, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. You know, when I first read the title of the book, um, it was intriguing to me. But when I learned about the access that you had been given and information that we had not been privy to, we might try to guess at uh, Richard Nixon's influence following uh, his darkest days. Uh, but to understand the story behind the story is just absolutely fascinating. How did you get access that had been denied to so many others from the Nixon family? Well, this is the last great untold Nixon story, and there's a reason why it's been untold. The papers are controlled by the family. And so even though they are housed in Yorba Linda at his presidential library, they are not open to scholars. Uh, I had to approach both Tricia Cox and Julie Eisenhower and secure their cooperation. Uh, they were kind enough to do that for me in 2010. And so I was able to dive into papers that in many cases no one had ever seen before. And I thought I would find a really good story. I was wrong. I found a great story. Just remarkable the how active he was during this 20-year period and how successful he was uh, rehabilitating himself and becoming an influencer again, somebody that people turn to for advice and counsel. He writes uh, nine bestsellers. He's, he's speaking at, at uh, events all over the country and around the world on his favorite topic, which is foreign policy. He's appearing on television. In fact, the, the Frost interviews to, to this day, 45 million people watch the first episode of the Frost interview. It's the highest rated political interview of all time, all the way up until today. So he manages to really create for himself a platform, and he has something to say, which is the most important part of the story. He has insights on the world. He has ideas on the Cold War and how to end it, and he's able through the use of his mind and the use of his foreign policy knowledge to help influence three presidents, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton, and really carve out a place for himself as an elder statesman, and it's just unimaginable in August of 1974 that any of this could have been achieved, and oh, yet it was. Absolutely. I was a senior in high school in August of 1974. You subtitled your book, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon. Perhaps some of our listeners 
don't fully appreciate how remarkable that comeback was. Um, you also refer to it as, uh, as surprising. Can you explain to those who perhaps weren't around uh, for that history and may only know have a secondhand account uh, how remarkable um, and surprising this was? So he is literally in the fall of 1974 left for dead, not just politically. He literally almost dies um, once he returns to San Clemente in August of 1974. Within a few weeks, he has a very acute attack of phlebitis where the walls of his arteries harden and the blood flow becomes restricted. He's rushed into emergency surgery in Long Beach. Um, they literally are not sure at one point if he's going to make it. He does. Uh, and once he comes out of that, he faces recovery time. He faces mounting legal challenges. He's broke financially. He can't make a living. He has to resign from the bar in, in California and the Supreme Court. The New York bar kicks him out, so he can't practice law anymore. He literally is at the lowest point of his life, both professionally and personally, and he has to figure out, what do I do now? How do I climb out of this? And there's no roadmap for him. There are no ex-presidents who are alive at that time. Johnson had died in 73. Truman had died in 72. Eisenhower died in 69. And even if they had been alive, they would have told him, do what we did and go basically retire, which is what they did. They, Eisenhower went to Gettysburg and Palm Springs. Johnson goes to his ranch. They go away. Nixon can't afford to go away because he has to earn a living. He has to do something with the remaining time he has, and he wants to – find some measure of redemption. Uh, he wants to become uh, an influencer again and to use his knowledge and his mind, particularly on foreign policy, to influence events. And so the way forward for him is through becoming an active ex-president, which is really the model all ex-presidents follow today. They follow the Nixon model. They write books, they do speeches, they show up on TV, they try to influence events. This is a relatively new model of an ex-presidency. It basically starts with Nixon. And he does it out of necessity. He has to do this for his own livelihood and for his own health and well-being, and he's remarkably successful at it. And that's really a story in the book is how he begins to make his way back over, over these 20 years and how successful he is at doing it. Once he restores his physical health, so is he, he's capable of uh, making this comeback, one of the, the things that may be surprising to some of your readers is that this was well orchestrated. He didn't just stumble into a resuscitation of his uh, of his reputation, but this was uh, carefully uh, planned to restore what had been lost and to restore a place of influence. You know, I found a diary entry in late 1974 where he, he writes, he kind of maps out a strategy. He says, uh, need to write a book maybe more than one, uh, do speeches, and appear on television where possible and try to put things into some perspective. And these are sort of the three legs of the stool. He's going to write a series of books on foreign policy mainly, which become bestsellers. Uh, and they're not just bestsellers. They're, they're books that important people read, including President Reagan, uh, who was a big fan of a book called The Real War on the Cold War. Uh, he does speeches all around the country, which allows him to have some interaction with the public again, and for people to see him again, and for people to hear from him again. And then, of course, the same with television. He goes on television where people can see him, especially when he can talk about his favorite topic, which is foreign policy. And because he's so successful at these three things, he becomes more accepted in the public's eye again. People begin to realize 
you know, we may not like what happened in Watergate, but wow, this guy really knows the world, and he sure is fascinating to listen to. And it's not just the public that starts saying this, but it's the three presidents at the end of his life. It's Reagan, Bush, and Clinton, who to, to varying degrees are all calling upon him for his advice and counsel. And that's really the, the heart of, I guess, the last half of the book is his interactions with those three administrations and how he's using this newfound influence to help shape events. And it's remarkable how well he does it. Yeah, it really is. Now, there was a supposed medical hoax when Nixon was called to testify. Uh, what's true about that story and what did you learn from your research? I mean, it's it's a, a complete myth. I mean, this is one of the great myths of Watergate that he returned to San Clemente and hid from the legal proceedings in Washington by by pretending he was sick. As I described earlier, he almost dies. And Judge John uh, Sirica in Washington, who wanted Nixon to testify, sent a three uh, a panel of three doctors to examine Nixon in California, and they all came back and unanimously said, there's no way this guy can travel. He's as sick as he can be. And so this became yet another uh, part of the Watergate story. That it, was, it was somehow a part of the cover-up, that he was hiding, that he was afraid to testify. And in reality, uh, it's a much different story. He, he was almost at, at death's doorstep. And it marks an important turning point in the book because, as I said earlier, once he gets home from the hospital and begins the recovery, he starts to think about, what do I do next? I, I can't just sit here in retirement because, I mean, I could, I could die. I've, I've got to be active. I've got to be doing something. He says to one of his aides years later, I've got to be writing and speaking and thinking because it, it keeps my mind going. It keeps me alive. And so he begins to climb his way out of the hole in 1974 by becoming active and using his mind and really honing in on foreign policy. And, of course, this is a very important time period foreign policy in the country because we're approaching we didn't know it at the time but we were approaching the climax of the cold war and it turns out he has a lot to say with regards to how to help bring that to an end and and that's what he does primarily with president reagan and it, it's fascinating um some of the interaction between them and, and some of the suggestions he was giving to reagan even while he's negotiating with gorbachev there are things reagan was actually using and there were things that actually worked in the negotiations and again just a testament to how far he had come. Yeah, yeah. Now, another um, bit of lore around Watergate was that uh, Nixon apparently made an accidental on-air confession of the Watergate cover-up when he had his famous interview with David Frost. Was there an accidental confession? Uh, Was this part of Nixon's strategy? How did you uh, discover what was behind what was interpreted as an inadvertent confession? So this is another, again, another myth of Watergate that Nixon somehow stumbled in this interview and Frost kind of brilliantly trapped him into saying that he had some responsibility for Watergate. The reality is much different, and I, I got this story by interviewing Ken Kachigian, who was one of Nixon's closest aides and who was with him during the taping of the interviews. They certainly knew these Watergate questions were coming, and before this particular segment was taped, Nixon said to Kachigian backstage, you know, he wants me to grovel. He wants me to say that I broke the law and, and I, I didn't and I'm not going to say it. And, and he said, but I, I certainly feel bad. I mean, I certainly let people down and I let the country down. And Kachigian says, well, I think that's your answer. That's exactly what you should say. And so when they went back on the air and the cameras turned on, 
Frost asks him about his role in Watergate and, and very aggressively tries to push you know, for some sort of a confession. And Nixon stops short of saying that there was any crime committed, but he clearly says he was morally at fault. He says that it snowballed. Uh, I let people down. I screwed it up. And Frost presses a little harder about impeachment, and Nixon says, I impeached myself. And this formula that he would admit to a moral wrongdoing but not a legal wrongdoing uh, is the formula he'll return to throughout his lifetime whenever the topic comes up. And it's it's just interesting. It's another piece of the story we've maybe not quite understood the mm-hmm. whole thing. Uh, the whole thing about it, he, he was not an accidental answer, something that he had practiced beforehand, and it's how he really felt. He did feel bad about what had happened, but he, yeah. he did not feel that he had broken any law, and that's what he would say for the rest of his life. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Casey Pipes, a fascinating book, After the Fall, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon. He had access, unprecedented access to uh, documents uh, for those 20 years following the president's resignation. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with the, the author of After the Fall, the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. In it, Casey Pipes tells a fascinating story of Nixon's comeback. He was granted unprecedented access by the Nixon family to the private post-presidential documents at the Nixon Library. And it re- reveals some inside information that's never before been reported about Nixon's successful campaign to repair his reputation and resuscitate his career. Now, it's become quite common uh, to compare uh, President Donald Trump with uh, President Nixon these days. They're often compared in the media. Do you think this is a fair comparison and how are they similar and how might they differ? I think there's some similarities. I think not the ones that the media is drawing. Um, I mean, obviously, people are going to try to draw comparisons on the scandals, but I think the real comparison is on policy. I mean, Trump is not an orthodox conservative, neither was Nixon, Uh, and particularly on foreign policy, um, there's a lot of common ground there. Nixon was a realist, uh, not an idealist on foreign policy. He believed that American policy overseas should be based on protecting American interests and not on uh, promoting human rights or promoting democracy or a lot of the things we've seen in the last several years with some of the more idealistic policies the presidents have put in place. Trump is a throwback. I mean, Trump campaigned against um, the Iraq war. He campaigned, I mean, even last week in the Oval Office, he was asked about Afghanistan and he said, you know, we can't be the world's policeman and we can't be all over the place building schools and hospitals. We have to come, you know, bring up, bring the troops home and take care of Americans first. This is the, the shades of, of realism that policy, American policy should be based on American interests. That's a real uh, similarity, I think, that they have. But I think that they're also very different in many ways, and even on foreign policy. I think Trump is much more instinctual. Um, he he brags about his instincts and you know, kind of making decisions as he goes. And we saw this a few months ago with the the aborted attack on on Iran when mm-hmm. he kind of at the last minute decided not to do it. Nixon was much more methodical, um, much more um, coordinated and coherent and and and, and effective. Uh, so I think there's a lot of, of differences as well, but it, it is interesting to see 
some of the similarities because in some ways uh, there's more than people realize. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the ways in which Richard Nixon's reputation was uh, repaired and his career resuscitated. Uh, Talk a little bit about um, how uh, former President Nixon's advice helped to shape President Reagan's negotiations with Gorbachev and how that changed history, the role that he played in all of that. Yeah, this is really fascinating. And it's, again, he played a much bigger role than I think we previously realized. Um, One of the key areas uh, as the negotiations got moving was the Strategic Defense Initiative. This was Reagan's plan to build a defensive shield that would block incoming nuclear weapons uh, in the case of a nuclear attack. Nixon, from the beginning of Reagan's proposal of SDI, is very skeptical about the technology behind it. He doesn't think it'll actually work. However, he loves the leverage that it gives Reagan in the negotiation. He loves that the idea that the Soviets might think we could have a defensive system. And so he encourages Reagan to continue pursuing this idea and to use it as leverage in the negotiation to get concessions from the Soviets on both nuclear and conventional weapons. Now, the problem arises when Gorbachev uh, becomes very nervous about this technology. And uh, we know at one moment, the famous Reykjavik summit with Reagan uh, in 86, when Gorbachev demands that Reagan stop all work on SDI and Reagan refuses and the summit ends in, in disaster, Reagan gets up and walks out. Nixon is one of the ones that helps bridge this gap because he suggests to Reagan, he suggests to his national security advisor, Bud McFarlane, why not offer to share the technology with Gorbachev? It's a defensive system. So there's nothing to be, there's nothing to be afraid of. And if, if, if we can have one, they can have one too. But the real genius behind the idea was by doing it publicly, Reagan could box Gorbachev in and take the excuse away of, I'm not going to negotiate anymore until you give up SDI. Well, I'm offering to share it with you. So why are you not negotiating now? And it's exactly what Reagan did, and it works. And Gorbachev comes back to the negotiation t- negotiating table. They end up with the 1987 INF Treaty, which essentially eliminates an entire class of nuclear weapons. And Nixon had a role to play in getting to this moment. I mean, SDI was in, in some ways the sticking point in the negotiations, and he's one of the ones suggesting mm-hmm. to Reagan a way to square the circle. It's just remarkable. Yeah, it is. You also write about how Nixon traveled to China after Tiananmen Square to help preserve the U.S.-Chinese relations that had uh, he had opened up years earlier, and this was significant in maintaining uh, that fragile relationship as well. So this is something that um, it comes to something of a surprise because we think of Nixon as um, – and he is, in many ways, still to this day, very beloved in in China as the man who opened up the door to China. But he he did. He was not naive about it. He did so with a clear eye to the Chinese and what their intentions were. Um, he he did it as a as a Cold War strategy to help separate the Chinese from the Soviets, and also because he felt you have to recognize and acknowledge a country of that size. They're not going to go away. You can't ignore them. We might as well engage with them and try to shape policy to our to our liking. And so uh, he opens the door to China in 72, but in 1989, after the Tiananmen Square massacre, he travels to China. He meets with Deng Xiaoping, the leader of China, and he says in very brutal language, one more incident like that will be the death of our relationship. 
So here is the man who created the open door to China, who in many ways brought them into the modern world. Here he is essentially threatening them and saying, you better knock it off. Don't do this kind of thing again, or there's going to be real consequences in Washington. And I think in many ways that probably helped the Chinese get the message. I mean, who better to deliver that type of brutal message to them but Richard Nixon? And it also helped with with the Bush administration because they were facing pressure domestically in Washington from Democrats and some Republicans in Congress who wanted to retaliate with sanctions on the Chinese, which the president didn't want to do. Nixon didn't want him to do that. He thought that was the wrong way to go. But by having this message delivered by Nixon, it helped the Chinese sort of get in line and um, perhaps help prevent another type massacre from happening. And again, it's just another example of how involved he was during this period of his exile, much, much more so than we realized before. I suppose it's not altogether surprising that he would have some influence, some role in the Reagan and Bush administrations. But there was a surprising friendship with Bill Clinton as well. Tell us a bit about that. Well, politics makes strange bedfellows, and this is a a pretty strange one. I mean, Bill Clinton first came of age running for office in Arkansas in the early 1970s, campaigning against Nixon and Watergate. His wife, Hillary, uh, was a young lawyer investigating Watergate. Uh, And yet here they are, uh, less than 20 years later, uh, pretty regularly communicating on the phone and even in person about foreign policy. Uh, It was Bob Dole's idea originally for Clinton to uh, reach out to Nixon. Dole wanted to run for president in 96, but he felt like, you know, we have one president at a time and we we need him to be successful in foreign policy. And who better to call for advice than Richard Nixon, who Dole was very close to and thought a lot of and admired. And so Clinton reached out to him and Clinton just sort of marveled at what he found on the other end of the phone line. I mean, here was this uh, this sage, this this man of great wisdom and insight on the world, particularly Russia, which was the issue of the day. And, and, and ironically, they found a lot of common ground. I mean, Nixon had been somewhat critical of the Bush administration as the Cold War ended. He thought that they had not done enough to, su- to support the transition to democracy. He, they had not done enough to support the breakaway republics as they became democracies. And Clinton was a little more willing to engage on that and to use American influence and power to sort of help the democratic process along. And that's what Nixon wanted to see him do. And so Nixon strengthens uh, Clinton's resolve on these issues and and confirms his instincts that he's doing the right thing. And they, they talk very candidly for over a year, even right up until the last few weeks of Nixon's life. Mm. Well, the book arrived. I wish we had more time, but but uh, we don't. Uh, again, the title of the book is After the Fall, the Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon. Absolutely worth reading. Put it on your uh, your reading list. Casey Pipes, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I read an interesting column written by Cal Thomas, the uh, title of which, The Decline of a Nation. And it's really very sobering when you consider all of the details that are converging at a same at the same point in time in history and what that might mean for the nation moving forward. Now, 
putting it into perspective, I am a citizen of heaven. I'm a member of the kingdom of God. So this is important, but it's not all important. But it does give us a snapshot of where we are called to ministry in our local community at this time in our nation's history. Well, Cal Thomas writes that while inflation, high gas prices and food prices are falling stock mark are falling stock market, a corrosive politics and a looming recession are all causes for concern, even alarm. Two recent Gallup polls reveal an erosion of foundational principles that are key to a stable and enduring society. Now, I have to admit, it's difficult for me to imagine that the, the nation that I have known for these 60 now 66 years could train to change dramatically. Now, I know that we've seen some cultural shifts that have been dramatic, but the fundamental principles that have undergirded even those changes could change rather dramatically. But he goes on again, quoting from Cal Thomas, according to Gallup, 50 percent of, uh, of those surveyed believe the state of moral values in America is poor. Thirty seven percent say they're only fair. The trend is not headed in the right direction as 78 percent think they are getting worse. <clears throat> One doesn't have to look far to see the reason for this pessimistic outlook. Consider what's being taught and not taught in many public schools and universities. The media, social, broadcast, cable and entertainment mostly focus on tawdry. It's uh, news that Emma Thompson is uh, doing a nude scene in a film because she wants us to love our bodies. Okay. It's news that Kim Kardashian wore a dress once worn by Marilyn Monroe when she sang Happy Birthday to President John F. Kennedy in 1962, which was offensive to his wife. Don't even get me started on the fascination the media have with Harry and Meghan. Things once considered wrong and immoral are now paraded as the opposite and woe to those corporations, institutions and individuals that claim otherwise. Need more examples? Well, there isn't enough time to list them all, but these are a few, and they will do. Mass shootings in schools and everywhere else. Speaker Nancy Pelosi appearing on RuPaul's Drag Race and remarking, this is what America is all about. Drag queen story hours at some elementary schools and other actions related to the promotion of the acronym, excuse me, known as LGBTQ+. Gender identity and fluidity. Facebook's list of gender categories now totals 58. A library system in Maryland hosting social justice and activism camps for ninth graders to teach them how to engage your activism, make uh, connections to your community and develop your passions. They may not be able to read, write or calculate, but they can be good, well-trained, indoctrinated activists. Oregon Governor Kate Brown signed a menstrual cycle dignity bill that requires thousands of new feminine product dispensers to be placed in boys' bathrooms. A Washington, D.C. elementary school gave pre-K through third grade children a lesson on anti-racism that asked them to identify racist members of their family. Moral decline, along with massive debt, has contributed to the collapse of great nations in the past. We imagine it could never happen here. After all, it's our time and it's our nation. If a foundation is defective, any house built on it will likely experience distress. What makes us think we can escape the judgment of history and avoid a similar fate? A house and its foundation must be maintained. A car must be serviced. A body must be taken care of. So must America. 
The second Gallup poll found belief in the existence of God. I've referenced it here on the program has reached a new low. 81% of those surveyed said they believe in God, but the number is down six points from a consistent 87% that held that belief between 2013 and 2017. The two polls should be seen as related. When a vacuum is created, pressure builds from the outside to fill it. If growing numbers of people don't believe in God, they have to believe in, well, something. Without the uh, power to restrain humankind from our lower nature, anything goes. Is this where we want to be, and is this the direction in which we wish to be headed? I once heard the late evangelist Reverend Billy Graham say America was not at a crossroads, but had traveled down the wrong road and needed to come back to the crossroads and take the right road. What if we can no longer agree on the right road and where the wrong road is leading us? And that seems to be where we are today. Again, quoting from Cal Thomas and his uh, column, The Decline of a Nation. I mentioned yesterday the death of a Multnomah University professor who had served faithfully, not just in the university, but also in other ministries, uh, and had left a significant impact on the lives of men and women in his wake. He and his wife working together, uh, Dr. Cook, working together to impact the lives of many. Now, you're not going to see his name on a headline in the Oregonian. You're not going to see... A story, uh, the lead story on KGW, KATU, or any of the other uh, local news stations, or for that matter, national news stations. But the contribution and the life that he and his wife lived uh, for the sake of the kingdom has such significance, you cannot measure it by its popularity in the, the current culture. And we are living in a moment when we have the opportunity to leave a significant impact in our wake as well. I was listening to a sermon just yesterday on my way home from work in which the the preacher was talking about seedless fruit and how convenient it is to have a piece of fruit that doesn't have seeds in it because you don't have to, you know, eat around them. But it's really an impotent fruit. It may be tasty, it may be beautiful, but it doesn't have the capacity to reproduce. Those seeds are not there. And you and I have a tremendous potential to leave a trail of seeds that produce good fruit behind us, despite the, uh, the, the state of our nation and perhaps because of the state of our nation. And I, I certainly have been challenged and would challenge you as well to consider the role that God has called you to in this very place at this time in not only our nation's history, but in history itself and the mark that we are called to play, despite the direction the culture might be going What a tremendous privilege it is to have an opportunity to leave a legacy, to leave an imprint and to make a difference that not just that garners a headline that says you are popular or beautiful, but has an eternal impact. And each of us has that opportunity. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.